0: News, weather, traffic, money,
1: politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this has always been a kind of crazy, busy shopping time of year, particularly in the U.S. because of Black Friday. And in recent years, we've seen that coming up here into Canada as well. So we're asking you this morning if you will be checking out any of those holiday sales, maybe making some purchases over the next few days, are you going to be doing that? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. Something else that's become pretty popular in recent years is this buy now, pay later option. But is that a good idea? Well, we thought we'd ask an expert about that. Joining us now is Erica Alini, our global news online money reporter and author of the book Money Like You Mean It, which comes out December 9th. Erica, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. I've noticed this a lot as well, like on any website now, that you can like pay in installments or buy it now and pay later. Is that pandemic related or were we kind of on that track already?
2: So we were on that track already. I kind of had my eye on it because I'd heard about it in the U.S., but in Canada, it really exploded. During the pandemic, when we were all stuck at home. We started uh, spending online, buying everything online a lot more, and it was the perfect environment for BNPL to take off.
1: Right, and so are people using that option?
2: Yes, it's it's growing super fast, exponential speed, uh, both in the U.S. and in Canada.
1: And is there a downside to that? Do you think?
2: Yes, I think they they can be pretty tricky. Um, it sounds good in in theory because um, you know it, often it's it, you're not using credit, um, so it can be you know seen as a, as a positive. But I find that. Um, Splitting even small purchases into even small installment payments can be a real slippery slope into overspending for a couple of reasons. First, it anchors your brain on the smaller amount of the monthly payment rather than the total amount of what you're looking at. So let's say, you know, I... I'm looking at designer jeans. They're $235. I can pay for them over five months for $47 a month. Now, what I'm going to think is I can totally afford $47 a month. And I'm not really thinking, can I really afford to drop $235 on jeans?
1: Right. So it's misleading.
2: Well, it plays with the human psychology. You know, like you you see a number you you were used to budgeting monthly, and so, um, you know, it's a common technique to, you, to get you to focus on the monthly payment rather than the total. We've definitely seen this, for example, with, uh, uh, and with auto dealers, you know, um, in the auto industry. Like, they now tell you, oh, you can pay for the scarf for, you know, only $150 a week. <laughs> the smaller you make that payment... Uh, that's what I'm going to remember. That's what I'm going to focus on rather than the total amount.
1: I have noticed that with car payments for sure. I'm like, why do they always advertise the payments by the week? Because that doesn't mean anything. Nobody, right? It's the monthly payment that gets you.
2: <laughs> but that's why they do it because the smaller they can make it sound, the better it sounds.
1: Okay. So is this something, are, are we falling for this then? Like, is, are these little micro payments adding up?
2: Yes, we are definitely uh, falling for it. So, uh, one, you know, one problem is that, you know, anchoring your brain on the smaller amount, like I said, but the other problem is when you start to have a ton of small payments, our brains are not very good at uh, keeping track of a lot of small things. So we know the big bills that are facing us, you know, the the rent, the utilities, the car payment, we're not very good with micro, what I'm calling micro payments. Um, So you could have a lot of these smaller BNPL payments coming, if you're using it all the time, coming out of your account every month. Plus, you probably also have a lot of subscriptions because everything is becoming subscription-based these days. Um, And so that really becomes a lot of tiny payments that you probably forgot about that are now becoming a really significant amount coming out of your bank account every month.
1: This reminds me of you know twenty years ago or fifteen years ago we used to talk about oh those those lattes add up this is like the new version of that yeah it's like pay for your latte in fifty cents installment. right or just you know, like the idea that you don't know we don't realize how many times you're stopping for a latte and that money adds up in the long run but people don't think like that exactly yeah it absolutely plays on that okay so any advice for people then at this time of year Erica.
2: Yeah, I would say, um, you know, if, you're, if, if this is, you know, for discretionary spending, I would say avoid BNPL. Um, that's the surest way to make sure that you're only buying what you can truly afford. Where BNPL could come in handy is if you have to buy something that's a little bit expensive and you absolutely need it. So it doesn't have to be, you know, the usual The old-fashioned buy now, say later, was for things like mattresses and furniture. Um, It could be for something else, to say, you know, your laptop breaks. You absolutely need another one. If you can buy an installment, uh, then maybe you don't need to dip into your emergency fund. Maybe you can buy uh, the laptop that you really need. It's a little bit more powerful, has a little bit more more memory. It will serve you well in the long term. And buying an installment installment comes in really handy.
1: All right, Erica, thank you so much for that. Thank you. That is Erica Eleni, Global News Money Reporter, talking about the the kind of traps that we fall into at this time of year, especially with this buy now, pay later or paying in installments, which I'm sure you've seen. I've noticed it everywhere now. For every item you can pay for it, installments tends to add up. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with our Raji So Hall this morning. We're talking about whether or not people are going to do some shopping this Black Friday. What do you think, Raji? Is it going to be busy?
3: Uh, I don't think it's going to be too busy, Simi. I've seen so much um, criticism online in the last week of these so-called Black Friday sales. And I am not immune to a good sale. Uh, like I've been looking for a car seat, for example. And I've been looking at car seats that are on sale for Black Friday. And I saw the one that I want is 20% off. So, okay, that's not huge, but- it's something. I- it's something I can dig. So I do a bit of research and you know, car seats expire after six years. Well, these ones that are 20% off, they are already on their way to expiration. They're already one to two years into the warranty. And does the store disclose this info to me openly? No, they do not. And then there was also something else I was looking for in the world of retail and they were offering uh, 30% off plus free shipping just like they were a week ago, and the only difference is that now it's called a black friday sale so i've I've had my eye on some things, but I am. Um being a little bit skeptical. And it, and it sounds like a lot of people are trying to scrutinize what's out there and make sure it's really a sale before they go for it.
1: Well, keep in mind, too, I think probably a lot of retailers are going to think, well, maybe I can clear everything out that's going to kind of sitting around here, too. And, you know, I, I know this happens a lot, too, is that it's a sale, but you think, well, wait a minute, wasn't it this price before? Or couldn't I get it somewhere else for this exact same price?
3: Yeah, I've been seeing that a lot. And um, I also saw uh, actually a a local retailer, small business that said, you know, we're seeing scrutiny out there about Black Friday, that it was an American Thanksgiving holiday kind of sale thing. Why did we adopt it here? Don't take part in it. And this small business was saying, don't boycott Black Friday altogether. It said that small businesses get ready for this uh, big sale that they plan for it. They curate it. So go support them. And I guess, like, ultimately, if you've got to spend, spend there first. But otherwise, I mean, in general, I'm of the mindset now that we just we all need to shop a little bit less than we do.
1: It is amazing to me how quickly Black Friday did take hold here because yeah, I know when I first started working here uh, at CKNW and I was part time. So I worked a lot of, you know, holidays and weekends and that kind of thing. And I remember that um, I had to work Boxing Day one year oh yes and you know no big deal when you're part time that's what you do i was filling in on boxing day and so i and i thought oh it's a holiday i'll bring my car in because then you get you know it's cheaper to park here i couldn't get into the parkade like we work here downtown at pacific center above pacific center i couldn't get into the parkade rachi because the lineup to get into the parkade went around the block because so many people and this was early for coming in for black friday or not black friday sorry boxing day shopping right Uh, within five years, that was a thing of the past. That didn't happen anymore. So it's almost like people gave up on Boxing Day and they decided, no, I like Black Friday better.
3: Yeah, it seems like when Black Friday, this American import, when it came here, it didn't come all at once. It was like slow and kind of sneaky at first. And then boom, we adopted it, even though we don't have the same Thanksgiving as them. We don't have the same uh, issues with stores clearing stuff out at the same time. Um, And now, yeah, you're right. It's totally. Part over. our culture now, our consumer culture. And, and I was talking to some friends who tell me that this is when they do all their Christmas shopping. But I get that in terms of timing, like trying to do your Christmas shopping now and looking for a deal. But I have been seeing mostly sales that have been around. They've been around for a few weeks already. I can see wanting to save on a big ticket thing. But, uh, you know, these, these like 20% offs here and there on smaller items are not enough to entice me.
1: Do you do research? And clearly you do before you buy. And that's what I wonder is like, do people (laughs) fall for the it's on sale, therefore, oh, it's a great deal, I should buy it. Or do you think people do research about what they're going to buy?
3: I'll give you an example, though, of when I so I do do my research, but if it's something that I don't buy very often, and it's not too expensive, say, like, for example, running shoes. Um, If I if I have been looking a little bit online and seeing ones that I liked and I and seen these Black Friday sales and I went, oh, OK, well, yeah, maybe I should go for this 25 percent off. And then, you know, the smarter <laughs> okay. version of me said, just research it, just quickly research it. So I did. And it looks like it was actually just a 5 percent off sale.
1: Oh, so but you were ready to fall for it because you thought, oh, it's 25 percent off
3: people, me, including myself, we just want to feel like we had a small win. We want to feel like we got a deal. And it's not always the case
1: that you're getting a deal. But if you walk away feeling like you did, then you kind of actually did win a little bit. See, here's the thing. I don't think 25% is enough to make me buy something. Hmm. Especially if it's, like, if it's a big ticket and like I'm if it's going to be something if I'm going to be persuaded to buy like something new and big for like a sale, Black Friday, then it better be big. It better be like 30, 40 percent off.
3: Yeah, I'm not seeing huge sales like that, are you?
1: Well, a year ago I did. I always tell people this story. I got a great brand new vacuum yet last year for Black Friday. <laughs> And yeah. it was 50% off. And honestly, Whoa. it's the greatest vacuum I've ever had in my entire life. And so nothing in my mind can live up to the fact that I got this amazing, like what they call like a doorbuster you know, 50% off deal on this vacuum. It kind of set the standard for me now. Like if that's, I got that I've gotta deal, tell you. it's all got to be good like that.
3: I have to tell you my embarrassing story that's kind of similar or Let's doesn't hear end it. up the same way. Um, I also bought a really awesome vacuum cleaner, um, but it wasn't Black Friday sale. It was for a uh, Boxing Day sale, and um, the local retailer said it was 50% off, and you know, it was a high-quality vacuum cleaner, and I thought, wow, 50% off? I've been thinking about these. Now, I was there in person, so I didn't do the research, and it was a final sale. I bought it came back home showed off to my husband and he said uh you know how much those normally go for right so it wasn't 50% off um I ended up you know maybe saving a couple of dollars literally so (laughs) is it a good vacuum though it's
1: phenomenal okay well there you go right can't (laughs) complain as long as it's good and you love it that's the only thing that matters so we're asking people today about whether you're going to do some shopping for Black Friday or are you sitting this one out this year Raji thank you thanks This is Mornings with Simi. Well, where have the last three years gone? Uh, Yesterday was the day that Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart delivered what could be his last State of the City address to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. I say could be because next year is an election year. And, you know, anything could happen in an election year. So let's talk to him about what kind of state he thinks the city is in. And Kennedy Stewart joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here.
4: Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Jimmy.
1: Do you think the city is in better shape now than three years ago?
4: Well, if you subtract the pandemic from the whole situation, I actually think we're we're a lot better on many fronts. Uh, but the pandemic, of course, has effect, affected everything. And, for example, it's taking us a while to get back on track in terms of revenue sources and those types of things, uh, getting businesses reopened. But... Uh, if you uh If you take out the pandemic, I think things are better, and I have accomplished a lot of things that I set out to do
1: and what do you okay what 's top of your list? What are you most proud of then
4: Well, um, when I came in uh, to the election in 2018, uh, the city had set a target of uh, seventy two thousand uh, housing units. We wanted to build that many homes over the next ten years uh, through the election, I thought we could be more ambitious, so I promised we 'd uh, build eighty five thousand. But yesterday at the Board of Trade, I revealed that uh, we're now on track to build uh, 100,000 homes over the next uh, 10 years. Uh, We're already two years into that. And so I'm really happy about the changes that we've made at the city, uh, the work we've done with the, the building community to make that happen. And I think everybody knows housing is... Uh, outside of COVID, the top issue uh, here in the city, and it has been for a long time. So I I do think that's going to make a big difference.
1: Also, you know, I know Vancouver likes to talk climate change a lot. But given what we saw happen in the Fraser Valley and and parts of BC over the past week and a half, is Vancouver's infrastructure actually prepared for climate change? If we forget parking programs and all that kind of stuff, what about our infrastructure?
4: Yeah, so uh, we did talk a bit about that at the Board of Trade yesterday. Um, when we came in uh, as a new council in 2018, we actually went through a giant um, uh, training program in terms of what we do, for example, in the in the event of an earthquake. Uh, it really showed that Vancouver is ahead of most uh, municipalities. We have a, a very um, robust emergency operations center uh, that... Uh, that we use, uh, so for example, if we 're going to get super heavy rainstorms we 'll go to level one there we 'll get our staff in place we'll be monitoring everything. Uh, we have the um, you know urban heavy rescue uh, team here in the city. So uh, we're as prepared as we can be, and that showed uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when I had to declare the first uh, state of emergency in the history of the city. And uh, we were able to rapidly roll out resources to, for example, make sure uh, lots of people in the downtown east side uh, didn't get COVID, which we were terrified about.
1: Right, but when you see like, what happened in the Fraser Valley, too, did it make you think twice? Did it make you, know, you and council think, we had better think about our infrastructure?
4: Yeah, I mean we're thinking about infrastructure all the time, and this is why my um, my uh, I think very strong relationship with the senior levels of government matter. Uh, so, for example, we have to replace the uh, Iona water treatment plant uh, that uh, that the city relies on, and that's uh, going to cost ten billion dollars. That is a a massive project. And Did you say no, billion with a B? I said billion with a B. And there's no way that we can fund that strictly out of property taxes. So this is why um, I don't think it's any secret that I've uh, managed to secure uh, lots of funding from the federal and provincial governments for housing here, social housing in the city. Uh, and that's why we have to continue those relationships in order to uh, build the infrastructure we need, but then to make sure our, you know, everything is, is ship-shape. Uh, one would be to, to tear the viaducts down. Which of course are not uh, earthquake prepared, not not uh, seismically sound, and uh, if they collapse in an earthquake, they could uh, cut off the downtown to uh, to access, which is is something uh, I'm also working with the federal and provincial government on to uh, remedy.
1: Okay, well, let's also talk about crime here, because I know this is a big issue for a lot of people. We've seen stories about like mass shoplifting getting a lot of attention in the U.S. here too, with the VPD cracking down. Downtown businesses say they need help. What is the city going to do for them?
4: Well, of course, the operations of the police are all under the direction of uh, Chief Adam Palmer, who is uh, one of the most decorated, uh, you know, police executives in the entire country, if not uh, in North America. So I have really great confidence in his ability to use the resources to uh, put the police and, and uh, put the operations in place that will help, and you can see results recently where as you mentioned, that uh, targeted efforts by the police have paid off. Um, and I do really feel for people who are, are victims of crime. I mean, there couldn't be anything worse that, that happened. But overall, uh, you know, our city is uh, safe. You know, we, we uh, violent crimes are, are very low uh, in comparison to other cities around North America. And the police are well-funded. Uh, we spend a million dollars a day on policing here in the city, uh, they comprise 20% of the budget, where before I came to uh, to uh, be mayor, it was about 17% of the budget. So uh, the police are well-funded. There's always going to be discussions about where uh, budget money can be placed, but I feel uh, good about how, how the police are resourced and also good in terms of how they're uh, executing their duties.
1: So you don't foresee any increases for them in terms of funding or more officers?
4: There will be... Uh, probably some increases. What we're waiting for is uh, I actually chair the police board too. So on Thursday, uh, the police board will be deciding on their final request to the city in terms of what they would like to see in in this year's budget. So we're, we're waiting for those numbers, but I do foresee, uh, you know, at least uh, holding uh, steady with the amount of money that we're sending to the police uh, in, in what is a very difficult time for the city uh, in terms of revenues. We, our revenues were way down last year, uh, due to COVID, and, and we're still, uh, you know, not back up to uh, full, uh, our full revenue mm-hmm. uh, streams this year. So, you know, they're tough decisions, and Council will be discussing those over the next couple of weeks.
1: You mentioned that, you know, you believe that property crime stats, all of that is relatively low, but do you think people feel safe in the city? Because then where do all these stories and anecdotes come from?
4: Well, I mean, I think some of them are real. Uh, I absolutely do, uh, and so it, it it does worry me. So I mean, I do try to keep a, 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 you know tabs on all this, and where I go is to the police uh, statistical uh, Geo dash dashboard that shows their real crime stats. And you know, the last time I looked, crime was down from last year overall twenty percent. Uh, in some categories, that people are noticing, it has increased, but not to uh if you if you go and look at this uh, statistical web uh, web page it, it doesn't show anything's in a kind of a danger area there are some areas and the and the police chief is rightly targeting uh and and having some success so uh i think uh you know as you mentioned it's going into an election year there's lots of folks that uh are running against me and a lot of them are you know taking opportunities to divide the community and to and to uh try to hype up some things uh but we'll, uh, you know, we'll have these debates as we go through the election cycle.
1: Oh, I'm sure it'll be an interesting year. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, he delivered a state of the city address to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade this week, next year being an election year. Don't know, could be the last one. We'll see about that. Or voters, I guess, will see about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've heard the forecast here, right? Another atmospheric river heading our way starting later today. Two or three of them coming towards us over the period of the next week. And yet, Right now, they still haven't fully recovered. Areas like Abbotsford. We know Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun has said right now what they're focused on doing is shoring up everything uh, to, you know, make sure that they don't have the impact that they had in the last 10 days with that last big storm. So they're trying to do some prevention work right now. Meanwhile, let's take a look at what's going on over in the city of Merritt and the Thompson-Nicola Valley region. We know they were also hard hit. How are they preparing for more inclement weather and an atmospheric river? Joining us now is Kevin Scrupneck, Emergency Program Coordinator in the Thompson Nicola Regional District. Kevin, thank you for being here.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: I guess things never really stopped for you this year, did they? You went from wildfires into rain and flooding.
0: No, absolutely. This has been a this has been a pretty hard hit uh, corner of the province. Uh, we are still very much, uh, you know, putting the pieces back together from fire season. Uh, You know, no more so uh, than, you know, obviously in the village of Lytton, which was, uh, you know, so affected uh, by the fire there on June 30th. So still looking at, you know, recovery, debris management, uh, trying to find accommodations for people. And then, you know, on the heels of that, uh, obviously a a new disaster that uh, has come together in the last few weeks here.
1: Yeah. What has the last week been like? Are still a lot of residents out of their homes? Well,
0: so in the in the Thompson Nicola Regional District, you know, in the rural areas, uh, yeah, we still have about uh, in the neighborhood of, of 50 addresses uh, on evacuation order, um, and now that doesn't include the the city of Merritt, as you mentioned. Uh, that's a a pretty huge uh, urban center, uh, you know, by our by our standards up here. Um, so they have been <clears throat> beginning a, a phased reentry for their uh, for their folks. So the uh, first area, uh, one of three, uh, was opened up yesterday. So uh, kind of in the less affected parts of the city, they have been letting people back in. Um, but they're, you know, certainly the areas more adjacent to the Coldwater River, which was, you know, the main mechanism of that flooding came in. Um, there's still significant work to do. And similar for in the TNRD, uh, we were able to rescind the evacuation order for the community of Brookmere, which is a small community uh, southeast of Merritt, um, so there's still no hydro service there, but uh, we were able to get people back in, uh, with the exception of one property that was uh, quite severely damaged uh, by the flooding.
1: Right. What's travel like in that regional district area? We know there've been lots of washouts on, you know, the Kauhala Highway Five, but it must be difficult to get around.
0: Yeah. So to to put it in perspective, obviously we're, we're dealing with the general disconnect of, uh, you know, losing the access to the, uh, to the coast. So yeah, the Hola highway one, both severely compromised. So, uh, right now we're relying on, on highway three and highway 99. And obviously we've seen highway three is still in, uh, you know, is still touch and go. There was a, there was a wash out there a few days ago that cut it off again, but <clears throat> to put it in perspective, uh, no, you know, Highway 8, which is the highway that connects Spence's Bridge to Merritt, uh, w- well over a dozen places uh, along that that stretch, the, the highway simply doesn't exist anymore. Um, it, the Nicola River has completely taken it out, and the geography of that area, for folks who might not be familiar, <clears throat> um, you know, any sort of a rebuild is going to be incredibly challenging because the... What's left now is basically river, and then very, very steep mountain next to it. There's going to be very little place to actually put a new highway in uh, if the ministry is looking to do so. So, there's uh, two First Nations uh, along that stretch, both the Nuayich and the shakin First Nation, and then uh, a number of uh, TNRD residents as well. Uh, in many areas, uh, you know, whether houses are damaged or not, uh, they're completely inaccessible. Um, so that's going to be a, a huge challenge going forward.
1: Yeah. What is the supply situation like then, Kevin? Are supplies still getting into people?
0: Well, so for for most of the folks that have been affected, uh, they have uh, been evacuated. Uh, so they are, uh, you know, uh, recognized. Some people did stay behind initially, but recognized, uh, you know, just how huge, especially in that area, in kind of the northern portion of Highway 8, just how cut off they were. Um, there are other areas where, you know, the highway is compromised, but there are still uh, back roads for service roads, things like that, where people are coming and going. So it's a little bit different situation there. But obviously, this is going to be, a you know, an ongoing issue. Uh, it's going to depend on how quickly those highways can be, you know, not necessarily rebuilt, but, you know, temporarily reopened, depending on what progress can be made. But generally speaking, though, supply chain, you know, has been fairly strong in the area. Obviously, we had some of the fluctuations last week with you know, panic buying, things like that. But we aren't looking at the same gas restrictions that are in place in the lower mainland. And generally speaking, you know, grocery stores, things like that are uh, are fairly well
1: stocked. Right. Because I guess the benefit for that is that there is still access to Alberta, right? You can still get things out there.
0: That's right. And we still would have a, a straight shot down to the United States, uh, Highway 97 to Asus and, uh, and over the border there.
1: Okay. So it sounds like, though, Kevin, there's still a lot of residents who probably need help. Where do you even start at this point, Kevin? Like, what does the next week look for you with more rain coming?
0: Well, yeah, as you alluded to, uh, you know, uh, it looks like a procession of uh, atmospheric river events coming over the next little while. So I know the the one that's coming today uh, for the interior for our region is of a, a little less concerned. We probably will see some rain. But What seems to be of more uh, issue uh, based on the forecast from Environment Canada and from uh, River Forecast Centre with the province is more so what they're seeing next week. Uh, You know, Wednesday, Thursday of next week. Uh, You know, it's projecting rain a week out, so it's it's a bit of a, you know, we're going to have to keep a close eye on it. But the way things are shaping up right now, it's definitely a big cause for concern. It's looking like similar conditions to... The event that kicked this off a few weeks ago so obviously that uh that's of a lot of concern and we're getting daily updates uh, from environment canada and from the province on how they expect that's going to uh how that's going to play out
1: so what is your message then kevin to residents in the thompson nicola regional district how should they be prepared
0: well, you know, for now, the floodwaters have, generally speaking, receded. Um, so we just don't want people getting complacent that, you know, the event has uh, has come and gone. Um, obviously, given that that weather forecast is in the midst. For for folks who have, uh, you know, had their access cut off, uh, obviously, you know, patients, you know, it, this is going to be a, this is an order of magnitude above the you know typical flooding that we see in this area. It's usually fresh up flooding in the spring. Uh, this kind of event's fairly uncommon. So, uh, you know, it, it's a broad provincial emergency, and uh, there's a lot of effort going into to uh, working on it. But, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is a pretty far-reaching event.
1: Okay. Well, listen, best of luck, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's Kevin Skrupnik, Emergency Program Coordinator at the Thompson-Nicola Regional District. They've already been hard hit by the flooding, that Highway 8, I know that has not been talked about as much as, you know, Highway 1 and, of course, the Coquihalla, but I've seen some of the pictures of the Highway 8 devastation, and it is just, it's gone, essentially. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's been called the world's most prestigious scholarship, and I believe it. It means something when you say so-and-so is a Rhodes Scholar. Winning it? Well, that is extremely challenging, but... Somebody here in Vancouver actually did that this week, and our Raji Sohal caught up with BC's newest Rhodes Scholar. Good morning, Raji.
3: Good morning, Simi. I love the story. I love some good news. Well, once a year, Oxford University in England, they select some students from a pool of thousands who submit their applications to join the ranks with uh, with people at, at uh, Oxford University. The scholarship is called a Rhodes. It's a super hard competition, like you mentioned, and applicants have to first apply to their own school. They have to submit a huge application with six references, a personal statement. Then the school has to nominate them to Oxford, and then the student can apply to the Rhodes Scholarship. So if you pass through all those hoops, uh, there are lots of grueling interviews to get through, and the the Rhodes Scholars are obviously very bright. But what's cool about this is that they're young leaders, they're youth that want to make a difference in the world. And Aditi Shriram is a 23 year old who graduated from UBC in May, where she studied faculty of uh, she studied at the Faculty of Land and Food Systems. And having grown up in a low income immigrant household, she wants to work on inequality solutions. And she's the one that got the call a few days ago. That she had won the competition?
5: So the interview was very, very challenging. They asked me a lot of questions that really challenged my beliefs. They asked me, you know, why is it regulation? Why can't business be better? Um, you, you know, what's the role of consumers? Um, how should we regulate big tech? You know, they were asking me all these big questions that obviously we don't have the answers to yet because, you know, a lot of folks are still working on it. Um, And so after my interview, I I just burst out into tears and I called my family and I said, it's over. Like, I know that everyone's excited about this, but everyone please don't have any expectations. I think it's over. So I cried for a few hours and in the middle of all that, I got the call and I thought, okay, you know, she's just going to tell me it's over. And she told me that I got it. And I just continued crying again. And I called my parents still crying. And obviously they thought I hadn't gotten it because I was still in tears. But I, the first thing I said to them is I'm going to Oxford and just my whole family on video call from from Toronto were just just screaming, just so excited. I think you know it, it really is kind of the immigrant dream. Like I don't think my parents could have ever imagined that their daughter would go to Oxford, that their daughter would get this scholarship. Um, and I think just so much pride. I think for my community and 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 for for my identity. I think um, and so obviously like had to scream it to my grandfather in India who. I don't know what Oxford University is like I don't know what this is and we were on like a bad connection so definitely just a lot of really excited calls to, to all of the people in my life that have supported me.
3: That's Aditi Sriram. She's a 23-year-old recent UBC grad who just got the news that she's been awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford University in England. This means she'll have a full ride to study among the brightest. And in talking to her, Simi, I, I could really see that she she's genuinely interested in community and she's been uh, building community her whole time at UBC, leading her to uh, even volunteer on the downtown east side.
5: So in my first and second year, I was taking all these courses and thinking about inequality. And I thought that um, being only in UBC was such an experience of privilege that I felt so distanced, especially I felt so distanced from my like the community that I came from. And it felt so kind of hypocritical to be in such a privileged pace, like learning about inequality. Um, And so I was thinking about, you know, what are the issues That we see in Vancouver Um, and I kept kind of hearing about harm reduction and I guess how it's how it's so powerful in um, humanizing the experiences of people who are in poverty so first I got involved with Pace Society which supports um, former and current sex workers on the downtown east side Um, and it didn't honestly didn't do anything too exciting they just needed support on their front desk and so I helped out I, I went to go and volunteer once a week um, and then was interested um, in kind of drug use and, and how drugs play a part. Um, and so I worked in an overdose prevention site um, so I just was there and, and uh, refilled supplies. again, it was nothing too amazing. Um, but it was incredible just to again donate I guess my time because that's what I had as a student um, and I got to learn a lot about um, you know I guess why people engage kind of in risky activities um, and why it's important to humanize those choices and Um, create place places that they can that people can engage in whatever activities they want in a safe way Um, so very passionate kind of about harm reduction um, especially in Vancouver so
3: what does Aditi want to study when she gets to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar well it has to do with what she learned from her time volunteering in Vancouver's downtown east side
5: Something that actually I learned from the downtown east side that has led directly to what I want to study in university is around financial exclusion. Um, I think that we often think about like nonprofits and how can we help marginalized communities. But when I started thinking about it more critically, I realized that um, actually the problem lies external to marginalized communities where people are exploiting and profiting off of people's poverty. Um, I think a really good example of that is just how there's inaccessibility of banks, like people can't access basic credit and debit services that a lot of us take for granted. And for that reason, they're trapped in this kind of poverty cycle. Um, And I realized that there's just these all of these systems in our society that um, relegate people to exclusion. Um, And I guess what I learned is that I want to focus on those I want to focus on why the rules of the game are rigged. So I think that a lot of services are centered there, but um, it's interesting because a lot of folks like if you want to access a supervised injection site, you have to go to the downtown east side. And so everyone's kind of congregated in this area. And you'll find that per capita, there's way less banks that are in that area and way more money lenders. So money lenders are charging way more egregious rates and people have to pay a lot more for the same services that all of us take for granted. And so in that way, um, it does kind of perpetuate that financial exclusion because these services bring folks to an area and then they're not able to access other services that are more predominant in other areas. And so it's kind of that interplay of, of exclusion and accessibility, I feel. All
1: right, Raji, I'm just going to say it when I hear people like oddity, I think, Oh boy, I haven't accomplished very much in my life because she seems so (laughs) ambitious.
3: She's so ambitious. She's so linked in with community right here in Vancouver. The fact that she's going abroad on this massive opportunity, the scholarship, scholarship, uh, the Rhodes Scholar, she's going to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. I mean, you know, when I said to her, what is it, what do you think they saw in your application? You know what she said to me? She said, it shows me that other people care about these important things too, which is just so humble. Um, And I really was so inspired hearing this 23-year-old talk about how she's going to uh, take on this next stage of her learning and, uh, you know, change the world, Sammy.
1: I know, right? Change the world. I look at these kids and I think, you know what? The world's going to be okay though, if these are the people who are coming up and they're going places, don't you think?
3: No joke, I always look to people 10, 15, 20, 25 years younger than myself whenever I'm feeling down. I really do. I look to them and I see what they're doing. I see their determination. I see their belief in how their small changes at an extremely like local level um, make a difference in the world. And yeah, I always look to people younger than me rather than people who are older than me for that kind of inspiration.
1: Well, she is certainly inspirational. Thank you so much for that. Thanks.